Our Father, we remember that day when you fed thousands and thousands of people through your Son and by the power of your Spirit. And when the food was done and the entertainment was gone, they left. And we think of the question your Son asked, a penetrating question. Will you too go? And we confess with Peter who said, who else has the words of eternal life but you? We thank you that in him is life. We thank you that the one who believes has eternal life. The one who does not respond, you said your wrath lives on him. So we come out of a deep sense of gratitude, knowing that we deserve nothing but wrath, but you in your mercy and grace sent Messiah to be pierced through for our iniquity that we might find forgiveness. May we never take that forgiveness for granted. May we always carry with us the death of Christ in our bodies as Paul said he did, confessing that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Now, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign in the world above and that you see every event that unfolds here on the earth. We think of the heartache that is unfolding across our planet this morning. People without homes, people buried under rubble, people caught up in floods and fire, and yet nothing misses your attention. And we know that our world is filled with sin and fallenness, but someday you promise to make a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So now we come as your people and we come with a deep sense of dependence to show us Christ. Thank you that the scriptures speak of him, that they are all about him. And though we come to a very difficult portion of scripture that is not easy to understand, help us whether we're new Christians or old Christians to take away what you want us to know today. Help me by your spirit to elucidate what is written here, that my people might understand it and not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Come and fill me, Spirit of God. Thank you for your ministry, that in weakness there is strength. Use me, I pray, and we ask it for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Would you turn to Daniel chapter 9? Daniel 9, in many ways, is the high prophetic point in the book of Daniel, the Mount Everest of prophecy within this great prophet's writings. And it's an important chapter because it's God's outline, God's blueprint for the nation of Israel. This is the fourth sermon here in the ninth chapter. I will review briefly this morning, but some of you might want to go back and listen online at the Search the Scriptures app. And listen to the messages so that you can really understand all that is happening. This is a very, very important program that God has outlined here for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. Now, a lot of people have discounted the Jews in our day, even Christian people. And they say, well, God's done with the Jewish people. That the church has replaced the Jewish people. Nothing could be further from the truth. About 40 years ago, in a very luxurious suburb outside of Chicago, a new residential community was being built, and some Jewish families began to buy some of the homes, and then more and more of them came, and some of the anti-Semites tried to figure a way to keep them out. And so the minister in a nearby church put out on a marquee the sermon title, How to Get Rid of the Jews. Well, that topic created a stir, and the church was packed that Sunday. 
And a Jewish rabbi came with the press, and the pastor opened with a reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me. The rabbi quickly understood his point. It is impossible to rid the Jewish people any more than you can get rid of the sun or the stars and the moon out of the skies. You cannot destroy Israel. God has a plan for the people of Israel. And just as He used them the first time to bring the coming of the Messiah, He will use them again a second time. Now, prophecy is wonderful because it's really history pre-written. And some of the most specific prophecies in all of the book of Daniel are found here in the ninth chapter. And really, many specific prophecies, as far as I know, this is the only mathematical prophecy in all of the Bible. Now, let me bring you into the context because there are new people here every week. And then I know, as the New Testament affirms, that repetition is the master teacher. And I understand most pastors would not teach Daniel 9. When they teach the book of Daniel, they don't teach this passage, maybe the first 19 verses, because it's so difficult. But God has called us to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, and one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And we can't not ignore the prophecy passages. And some of you are brand new to the Bible, and you might be a little overwhelmed by this text. But don't be. God has something here for you that you can take away today as well. Now, if you remember in the first 19 verses, this prophet is in prayer and fasting, and his fasting and prayer is prompted by a prophecy that that Jeremiah the prophet had written of, that the deportation there in Babylon would last 70 years. And we studied the chronology of the text, and it clearly indicates that 67 of the 70 years had already transpired. And so here's Daniel, he's seeking forgiveness for the nation. He's seeking to find God's will, and specifically as it relates to what will happen after the Babylonian captivity is over. And in verse 20, he has an encounter with an angel most of us know from the New Testament, the angel Gabriel, same angel. And we read here in verse 20 and 21, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain, the holy mountain is Mount Moriah where the temple mount is, where the temple was first built, first and second temple, where the third temple will be built and the fourth. While I was praying about the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, Then the man Gabriel, that's an angel, often called men because they always appear in male form and God uses a gender-specific word in both Hebrew and Greek to describe angels. No women angels in the Bible. Sorry, ladies. You've got another role, more important in many ways. Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, that reveals several important truths. One, though this man had been in Babylon for nearly 70 years, Babylon was not in him. To use a New Testament idiom, he was in the world, but not of the world. His heart was still in Jerusalem, though the temple had been gone for nearly 70 years and he was 500 miles away. But the text also reminds me, he prays during the time of the evening offering. 
Now, we think late at night. Jews think 3 p.m. The evening offering began at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It was the time when the priests would go in and shed blood because God had established a principle that sin deserves death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's absolutely no forgiveness. And if you want to approach God, and if you want to go to heaven, and if you want to have intimacy with God, then you must come on the basis of blood. And Daniel recognized that. So he comes during the time when the blood would be shed. Verse 22, he, Gabriel, gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel, like David, is a man after God's own heart. Like John, he's a beloved disciple. Like Jacob's son, Joseph, of whom no sin was ever recorded, there is no sin ever recorded of Daniel. Just a few people like that in the Bible. Now, he had sin. He's confessing his own sin and the sin of the nation. But he is one who is highly esteemed. His life is characterized by godliness. The ESV renders it, you're greatly loved. The Net Bible says, you are of great value. The CSB renders it, for you are treasured by God. Does that mean God loves others more than some? Clearly not. God equally loves us all. God doesn't have favorites, but as I have affirmed, He has intimates. And if you're born again, you can be one of God's intimates. I think of what the prophet Jude wrote in Jude verse 21, just one chapter. But you, beloved, writing to Christians, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keep yourselves, or we might paraphrase it, remain in the sphere of God's love. He's not talking about God loving you more. You cannot do anything to make God love you more if you are in Christ, and you can't do anything to make God love you any less. He cannot love you anymore, and He will not love you any less. God wants to change you, not so that He can love you, but because He loves you, He wants to change you. And so Jude here is speaking of keeping ourselves in the sphere and the atmosphere of God's love, because with that blessing comes intimacy. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The proof of your love is you obey God, and when you obey, God reveals himself. And if your life is not exciting... If your heart is cold and dead towards the Lord and you've really been saved, it's just because you've compromised and you are in disobedience. God, the proverb says, is intimate with the upright. Look again here in verse 23. I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. He's not received the vision yet. Angel, the angel Gabriel is about to tell him the vision. Now, Daniel wants more information on the Babylonian captivity, and he's praying about God's holy mountain where the temple once stood. But God gives him above and beyond anything he could even ask or think for. He tells him not only the year the Messiah will appear, but he tells us of Israel's future all the way until the return of Messiah. Now, let's refresh our minds by reading verses 24 through 27, where we get the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, 
to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, we will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, again, on this chart, you get the big picture overview. You can see in 924 on the chart that it deals first with the first 70 weeks. He has looked at 490 years in Israel's past. The 70-year deportation is not by accident. For 490 years, they had disobeyed God. They had failed among a host of commandments to keep the land every seven years fallow. And so because they refused to obey God, God was going to give the land rest. That's why it was selected as 70 years. So he's looked at 490 years in Israel's past. Now he is looking at 490 years into Israel's future. So in 924, we have the scope of the prophecy. We saw six Hebrew infinitives, each introduced by that little word, two. You should have them all circled or underlined in your Bible. In 925, he tells us what will happen in the first 69 weeks, or 483 years. We've seen that the Jews have not just a week of days like we do, a seven-day week. They also have a week of years, and I established that on three bases in, in an earlier message. So he's not talking about 490 days. He's talking about 77. 77s of what? Not 77s of days, literally. It says 77s have been decreed. 77s of what? 77 of years or 490 years. In 926, as we discussed last week, there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week. And I'll try to refresh your mind why that took place. If you can't think immediately why, there's then review is warranted. And then in the 70th week, which is not yet begun, a week being one year is seven years long. So that's the big scope of it, all right? Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So God tells us there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks for a total of 69 weeks from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem until Christ, until Messiah, the Prince comes. So as you can see on this next slide, 62 sevens plus seven sevens make 69 sevens. Since it's week, not of days, but of years, 69 times seven refers to 483 years. From the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and there was only one decree in all of Jewish history. We studied it from the prophet Nehemiah. It brings you from 445 BC to 32 AD, specifically to April the 6th, 32 AD. Daniel the prophet is being told by Gabriel from the day the decree goes out 
until Messiah the Prince, there'll be 483 years. And you can take the, de- the day the decree was written, and I showed you this earlier, and you might want to review it if this is new to you. It's not easy. This is not the milk of the Word. This is the meat of the Word. And you really have to study it and put your mind around it, but there's a great blessing if you'll do that. It carries you until the day, the last day of the 69th week, when Jesus, as prophesied, comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and He officially presents Himself as Israel's Messiah. We call it Palm Sunday, all right? And then the text says, then after the 62 weeks, or you could say after the 69th week, because he's spoken of seven and 62, link the two together. After the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Messiah shall be karat. And we saw the word karat is a Hebrew word of execution. And I gave you some illustrations. The Messiah is going to be executed. He is going to be killed for a capital crime. And of course, after the 62 weeks, a few days later after Palm Sunday, Jesus was hung on a cross. Then he mentions how the city would collapse, verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who will come. So first, Messiah is cut off, crucified pierced through for our iniquity. Isaiah uses the word cut off, and then he describes how he'll be cut off in the same chapter. Then the city will be decimated, the city and the sanctuary. So the last day of the 69th week, Palm Sunday happens. Messiah is cut off. 38 years later, in 70 AD, Titus Vespucian comes down and totally decimates the city. And 1.1 million Jews are slaughtered. So again, from this next slide, as you can see, remember between the 20, verse 25 and verse 27, there's a gap of time. And I showed you last week, I tried to justify biblically not uniquely from this passage, but from other passages that sometimes in a single verse of Scripture, God will cover millennia of time. And there are 12 texts in the Old Testament where in a single passage of Scripture, God describes both the first and the second coming of the Messiah. And before we're done with Daniel and the Revelation, I hope to show you why he did that and what his rationale was behind it. But clearly there's a gap of time between the two, Because if the 70th week was contiguous with the first 69 weeks, then seven years after Jesus presents himself on Palm Sunday, not only would he be crucified, but the city and the temple would be totally destroyed. But the city and the temple is not totally destroyed until 38 years later, which tells you, well, the gap is at least 38 years. And here it is 2,000 years later, and the events of verse 27 have not yet occurred. And so this is really important that we try to grasp this because this is a text of Scripture that is often abused and overlooked and misapplied even in the day in which we live in. If you look again at verse 26, Gabriel adds, and its end will come with a flood. And we studied that expression last week, with a flood. It refers to an army of great force. It's a military term in the Old Testament. 
And indeed, Titus came in with a flood in 70 AD, and he decimated the place. Even to the end, he says, there will be war, desolations are determined. What does Gabriel say to Daniel? He says, the holy place where the sanctuary is, the temple is, where it's once stood, it will be a place marked by war and desolation. Has that happened? If you know the history of the Temple Mount to this day, it is one of the most contested pieces of property in the world. 37 acres that people have given their blood for. Even to the end, it will be marked by war and desolation. So right after Palm Sunday, the last day, of the 69th week, a few days later, on that day when they officially reject Jesus, this crowd that says, hail him, a few days later will say, nail him, and they reject the Messiah, he is cut off, and a few years later, 38 to be specific, the city is utterly destroyed. And because of that, God has called a timeout for the people of Israel. And that's why there's a gap of time. How long is this time out? And why is there this time out? Well, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 11. We studied it about a year ago in our exposition of Romans. Let me read it to you. Paul said there, For I do not want you, brethren, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Because they rejected what God gave them, there was a hardening. And I want to tell you today, and I got three fingers pointing back at me, then when you reject a truth that God gives you, believer or unbeliever, your heart doesn't grow softer, it grows harder. And the most important truth they could ever grapple with, and that's the Savior of the world, they rejected it. Not a total hardening. A partial hardening. That's why there are Jewish believers. There are 200,000 Jews for Jesus in our nation. In Israel, in every town and village, virtually there's some gathering of Messianic Jews. There are 12 congregations of Messianic Jews in the city of Jerusalem that met most of them yesterday. This is important because you will meet Jewish people who are responsive to the gospel. Not every Jew is hardened. But most of them are in unbelief. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with. At the end of 8, he deals with nothing can separate us from the love of God. So the obvious question comes, well, how about Israel? You said you love them with an everlasting love. You seemingly have abandoned Israel. And God says, no, I didn't abandon Israel. Israel abandoned me. I elected them. That's chapter 9, not personal election. It's dealing with national election, how he chose them out of all the nations of the world. Chapter 10, why they're in an unbelief. And in chapter 11, how they will come a day when he will restore them. And that's why he invites every Jew in Romans 10.9, to confess Jesus is Lord. Now, we apply that to ourselves and as G- to Gentiles, but in the context, he's inviting Jewish people to confess Yeshua as the Lord, as the Kurios. And when will this time end? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we saw that there are two important distinguishing terms in the Bible. One is the fullness of the Gentiles. The other is the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles speaks of political domination. It started with Nebuchadnezzar, and it still 
happening to this day. After Nebuchadnezzar carried the Jews away into captivity, when they returned to Jerusalem, they didn't come back to, to, to set up a throne. They built a temple. They established an altar, but not a palace. In fact, there has never been another king that has sat on Israel's throne, ever. Why? Because they had been under Gentile oppression. And even when they were born again as a nation, so to speak, reestablished, the prophet said, they would become a nation in one day, May 14th, 1948. It ought to be burned into your psyche because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Even when they became a nation, the Gentile nations continue to oppose them. The United Nations does not recognize Israel's sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus said in Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the lands and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when will the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled? Very clearly, when the last Gentile comes to faith, it could happen today. No one knows. When the last Gentile says yes to Jesus, when the church is full, so to speak, the church meaning the body of Christ, God will say to his son, go get your bride. And then God will call a time in for Israel and the 70th week will begin. Well, with that said, let me just say this. That's all by way of introduction, all right? That was a long introduction, I know. (laughs) So what I want you to see today, we're coming now to the 70th week, the 70th week of the 70 weeks of prophecy. And if you want to take some notes, there are three simple truths I want you to get. First, the evil king or potentate who is revealed. I used the word potentate so I could get three Ps and alliterate it, all right? So there's an evil king who's going to be revealed. Verse 27, let's read it again in its entirety. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the one week, we'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, again, this next slide, the great interval There are 69 weeks in verse 25, a gap of time that is unknown. It's been over 2,000 years long in verse 26. And then the 70th week will commence in verse 27. Now, during this final week, during this final seven-year period, remember, this is a week of years. So one week, one Shavuah, one seven is seven years. And we are told that he, circle that pronoun in the verse, he will make a firm covenant with the many. So we need to ask a question. Contextually, who is the he? Who does the he refer to? Well, it's no mystery. The nearest antecedent goes back to verse 26. Look at verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince to come did not destroy the city. The people of the prince to come destroyed the city. And so that he is clearly referring to this coming prince. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel recorded that the city, which contains the sanctuary, in the city we call Jerusalem, will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Please notice, the prince will not do this, but the people of the prince to come will do it. Now, we have 2020 hindsight. 
because we know the name of those that people. It was the Romans. And so in 70 AD, Titus Vespucian came in and demolished the place, totally tore it to pieces, totally uh, decimated the city and the temple. Now, how do we know that it was the Romans? Well, one history records that. This was a prophecy. This had not yet happened. But Daniel told us what this final empire would do. Let's go back to our metallic man. I know it seemed like an eternity ago, but back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, had a vision of a metallic man. The head of gold represented Babylon. Silver represented, if you remember, uh, Medo-Persia. The bronze represented Greece. And then the legs, two legs, probably referring to the eastern and western branches of the Roman Empire. But in either case, the legs represented Rome. So he describes this metallic man. And he describes these nations in terms of what they are going to do and the characteristics of these nations ever before the nations exist. Let me read Daniel 2 verse 41 to you. In that you saw, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be divided. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. So he describes these different empires. And this fourth empire has iron legs. But then the iron legs turn into feet with iron and clay that really don't mix together. And it's a reminder as we studied that the Roman Empire that started incredibly strong when it's revived, it's not nearly as strong. Verse 42 says, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the sent kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. So here in this next slide of the metallic man, we see the feet here of iron mixed with common clay. Now let's ask a question. Did the Roman Empire ever divide into 10 portions? Of course not. If you know history, you know that never happens. So he's describing two facets of this empire. And if you remember, there is a gap of time between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 2.41. And I gave you numerous illustrations where God does that, where in a single verse, he'll cover millennia of time. And so no, Rome never divided into 10 parts. And so really you see in the two legs early Rome and in the 10 toes of these feet, a weakened empire of 10 nations. Now, in the next slide of the animals, remember this from Daniel 7? In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel interprets it. In this chapter, God gives the prophet Daniel this vision. It doesn't come from Nebuchadnezzar. And so he tells of the kingdoms of the world from a divine perspective, and he uses these beastly characteristics to describe each nation. And again, it perfectly follows the same flow of the second chapter. And that final beast representing Rome, a vicious creature, in the end of time forms into a head with ten nations. And among those ten horns will rise up an eleventh horn, the little horn that we often call the Antichrist. There are over 30 names for the Antichrist in the Scripture. Here he is called the Prince who is to come. Now I'm going to show you that this is not some contrived interpretation that Pastor Carl came up with. The single best expositor I know who is alive who has ever lived, is Jesus Christ. 
And as we will see this morning, this is his interpretation of this vision. So, first thing, real simple, there's an evil potentate who is going to be revealed. Secondly, there is an evil promise that is going to be ratified. Beyond the evil potentate who is revealed, I want us to notice the evil promise that is ratified. Here in verse 27, he, that is the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This verse is highlighting what the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, is going to do. The prince who is going to come is going to make a covenant with the many. Now, some of you have a translation of the Bible where it does not say the many. It just says many. And the reason the translators did that is because it just reads a little easier in English. It's a little smoother. And that's why I suggest to you that you have a modern, super literal translation. And so the New American Standard reflects the Hebrew perfectly. It's articular. He's talking about not just a group of people, but the many, a specific group of people. And that phrase, the many, is used in other places in Daniel to refer specifically to the Jewish people. So he, the Antichrist, the prince who is going to come, will make a covenant with the many, the Jewish people, for one week, for seven years. And it's described here as a firm covenant. Now, don't forget, God predicted in the previous verse that after the 69th week, the Messiah would be cut off. And indeed, he was crucified days after the 69th week ended in 32 AD on what we call Good Friday. He also predicted in verse 26, the people of the prince to come, the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it happened 38 years later, precisely as Jesus predicted. Jesus said not one stone would be standing on another when they asked him about the beautiful temple that Herod had fixed up so wonderfully. And of course, the Roman army, when the thing caught fire, wanting the spoils of war, they literally pried apart every single stone up on top of that temple mount to get all the gold and all the spoils of war. And it came with a flood, and we saw that expression. I define Scripture with Scripture. With a flood, it refers to a powerful army force. And Titus came with great power, and he slaughtered 1.1 million Jews crucified over 500, uh, 500 Jews every single day while the city was under siege. He crucified so many people, there weren't any trees left in Jerusalem to make any more crosses. And then after the city was totally destroyed and decimated, those Jews who survived remained there in Jerusalem under Roman control. Well, they got the bright idea in 132 in a revolt called the Bar Kozva Revolt to go against Rome. And so they tried to take control of the city. And the Romans put it under siege again from 132 to 135 AD. And most of the Jews died from starvation and hunger. And those who survived were slaughtered. And a few ran and fled. And the Jews from that point on were told by the Emperor Hadian that they could never come back to the city of Jerusalem. So the emperor decided in mockery to the Jewish people to rename not only the city, but the land we call Israel. And so he called it Palestine. 
Now, without getting into all the phonetics, the reason he called it Palestine was after one of their enemies called the Philistines. And the Philistines were not Arabs. They were from the area of Greece. They were a conquering people. And so Newt Gingrich, several months ago, said there's no such thing as a group of people um, called Palestinians. And he's right, there aren't. There's no ethnic people known in human history called Palestinians. But in 1967, the Arabs began to call themselves Palestinians, and they wanted to call their land west of the Jordan River Palestine. And of course, their goal, and I'm not against Arab people, The Jew doesn't always have the white hat and the Arab the black hat. Jewish people have done evil things just as Arab people have. And we are to care for Arab people and win them to Jesus as well. But understand the prophecy that God gave centuries before when a little lady had twins in her womb. He described this contention between the Arab people and the Jewish people. And so they call themselves Palestinians and they think it's their land and their right to it. Well, God doesn't say it is their land and you shouldn't call Israel Palestine. Now, in a few of your Bibles, because the Brits adopted that term when they had it under control and they called Israel Palestine. But that's very offensive to the Jewish people to call their land Palestine because God never calls it Palestine not once in the Old Testament or the New Testament. At its Yisrael, the land of Israel. And so it's called in the New Testament in Greek as well. It's their land. God gave it to the Jew. He promised it to the Jewish people. Now they are to have compassion on the alien in the land, just as they were once shown compassion when they were aliens. God reminds them of that in the Torah. But when people want to destroy them, they have to defend themselves. And so Jesus, knowing what was going to happen, on that Palm Sunday, he wept over the city. For the days, he said in Luke 19, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will love you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon the other. And they were slaughtered and it was finished in 135. Now, back here in this previous slide. And he, will, and he, the prince to come, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, this is an important covenant. He is going to do something for the Jewish people that is going to absolutely blow their minds away. He is going to pull off something that Jews right now in Israel want to have pulled off. Now, remember, 135, Jerusalem, uh, the Romans expelled every Jew. And Israel was virtually empty of Jewish people for over 1,800 years. Now, in 1880, here's a population slide, bring it up if you will. There was 25,000 Jewish people. That was the first year that we have stats. About 1,900, it had dropped to about 23,000 Jewish people. In 1948, when they became a nation, there were 600,000 Jewish people in the land of Israel. Now, what Hitler meant for evil, God meant for good. Because when the Jews, in seeking to protect their lives, fled Germany and the other nations that Hitler had 
controlled. They would go to other countries, including our own. It is so embarrassing when you go into Yad Vashem or the Holocaust Museum in Washington and you see these letters where our own government said no to the Jewish people. They came in boatloads. And they had to go back to their countries, and many of them went to the gas chambers, but some of them went to Israel. And so the land began to repopulate. And then on May the 14th, 1948, with 600,000 Jews and nearly surrounded by 100 million Arabs, just as the prophet had said, they became a nation in one day. Now, the population today of Jewish people in Israel is 6,377,000 people. You say, is this significant? Yes, it is prophetically significant. God said this in Isaiah 43, do not fear for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The prophet Ezekiel wrote in the 11th chapter, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses looking at the end of time before the second coming of Messiah, he writes this in the fourth verse of that chapter. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed. A a great brother in Christ, he was a British Methodist. His name was Adam Clark. He was born in 1760. I was reading his commentary this week. And he wrote these words in 1811 in reference to what we just read from the Torah, from Deuteronomy. As this promise refers to a return from captivity in which they had been scattered, among all nations. Consequently, this promise cannot refer to the Babylonian captivity. The repossession of their land must be different from the return from Babylon, and he's absolutely right. Only a handful of the Jews, after the 70-year captivity, came back into Israel, and they came back from one central location. But God is speaking that at the end of time, he would gather the Jews from countries from all over the world and bring them back into the land of Israel. Not just any land, but the land your fathers possessed. The British government offered the Jewish people Uganda as a new homeland. They said, no, we don't want it. And had they taken Uganda, it would not have fulfilled the prophecy that God wrote. He said, I'll bring you back from across the world into the land which your fathers possessed. And then in the next verse, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, so that you may live. Now, as remarkable as the modern regathering of the Jewish people from across the world is, the second part of that prophecy has not yet taken place where the people's heart as a nation has been circumcised, where they have confessed Jesus as Lord. The spiritual dynamic, however, cannot take place until first the physical dynamic takes place. Before they can come in faith, God has to physically gather them into the land. And that's what Ezekiel looks at. He looks at not only the physical regathering, but in that great vision of the dry bones, he looks at the time in the future during the 70th week when they will believe in Yeshua. 
And what we are witnessing in our life is the beginning of the end. But the point I'm trying to make is because God knows and writes the future in advance. Here in Daniel 9, 27, he specifically knew that the people would be back in the land after it was destroyed. And so God is amazingly in our day setting the stage for the prince who is to come who is going to break this covenant again. And he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, how long is one week again? How long? Seven years. So the coming Antichrist will come out of this revived Roman Empire, and he will say to the people of Israel, I will protect you. I will make a covenant with you. And the word firm here is the Hebrew word gavar. It means a strong covenant, a firm covenant. You could even translate it an imposed covenant. And it's interesting to me that both the United Nations and the European Union are talking about an imposed peace upon the nation of Israel. In either case, this coming prince, this Antichrist, will offer some kind of covenant with some very strong guarantees to it. He will probably convince the enemies, and we'll see how in a moment, that the Jews ought to be able to rebuild their temple. We know it's going to be rebuilt. We know that it's going to be there on the Temple Mount because in the middle of the 70 years, the Antichrist is going to do something very specific in that rebuilt temple. Now, if you go to Israel today and you go to Jerusalem, and I hope in my next trip to Israel, we're going to do one on Bible prophecy as it relates to the end time if we're still here. But in either case, there's a place called the Temple Institute. It's a great place to visit. And if you go there, you discover these Orthodox Jews who have reproduced all of the temple furniture, including the golden menorah. They've reproduced all the priestly garments. And they are training Levites. There is a lot of people who cannot identify their tribe, but there's one tribe the Jews can identify, and that's the Levites. That's a sermon in and of itself. But they are training the Levites how to carry out the sacrificial system that God prescribed. Why? Because God said sin brings death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Now, what they don't see, what they don't understand is that the once and for all sacrifice that was pictured and foreshadowed by the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament has been completed. But nonetheless, they're going to say, we want our temple, we want our sacrifices, and the Antichrist will say, that's fine, no problem. And he will give it to them through ease, or as the King James says, through peace, he will destroy the many. Again, verse 25 of Daniel 8, we studied it months ago. And through his shrewdness, the person he's referring to in this verse is the little horn, the Antichrist, one of 30 names given to him. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they're at ease, while they're at peace. The Antichrist's peace plan will deceive the peoples of this world. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. So the Antichrist, through his shrewdness, through his deceit, he will magnify himself in his heart. He will come out of the former Roman Empire. Some people asked me, someone asked me recently, could he be an American? Technically, he could because we're dealing with ethnicity here. But he would still be in terms of his ethnic groups. When God says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he's not talking about, you know, this nation, America, this one. No, he's talking about ethnic groups. 
of every people and tribe and tongue, and he will come from the historical Roman Empire. He'll be one of the Roman people, so to speak. And he will come with braggadocious words. He will come with great plans, with a big mouth. Revelation says this, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That's exactly what Daniel says. A time, times, and half a time. Half of seven years is 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So this false Messiah will come with a false peace. He will destroy the many through peace or through ease. In our war-torn, economically deprived world of that time, will be ready and ripe for such a ruler. And he will come in the place of the Lord Jesus. The word antichrist, we think of it in terms of against Christ, but actually the prefix carries more the idea instead of Christ. Certainly he's against Christ, but he comes in the place of Christ. And so there's this evil potentate who is revealed, the prince who is to come. There's an evil promise that is ratified. The peoples of the world will buy into it. Third and finally, quickly, there's the evil promise that is repudiated. Now, let me read all of verse 27 again, and then we'll dissect it further. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, let me step through. It's a, it's a forest of theology here, but let's try to grasp the critical issues. Again, the first half of the verse. And he will make a firm covenant with the many, with the Jewish people, for one week, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice in grain offering. Now, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, there are some Christians in the Reformed faith who say the church is the new Israel, that God has no future for the Jewish people. Now, they can't deny the fulfillment of the first 69 of the 70 weeks, but they make the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy contiguous with the first 69, so there's no gap of time. The problem of that is many. Number one, it would basically make the events described in verse 17 or 27 happen during the time of Stephen's execution, when Stephen, the first Christian, is martyred in the church. Now, if you want to call that the Great Tribulation period, you can, but it doesn't even begin to mimic what God describes in Scripture. God made a promise to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke one thirty two, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. If you go back and study what Gabriel said to Mary, he makes seven prophecies to him, five that have literally been fulfilled, two that have not. Jesus never literally sat on David's throne, but at his birth, the angel Gabriel, the same angel that is giving David this, Daniel this prophecy, tells us that he is going to sit on the throne. Now, I love guys like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. They're not heretics. They're brothers in Christ. I'm glad they preach the gospel. I look forward to fellowship with them in heaven. 
But what they say in terms of their replacement theology that God has done with Israel is a heresy. They're not heretics, but that is a heresy because it denies the clear promise that God makes concerning the Jewish people. Again, in this next diagram, the big picture, the scope, verse 24, the first 69 weeks, verse 25, the interval, verse 26, the 70th week, verse 27. It's during the 70th week, the prince who is to come, the beast, the little horn, the antichrist, will make a covenant, a peace deal with the many, with the Jewish people. Let's read further into the verse. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Look at this next diagram. You can see the seven-year, the 70th week, the seven-year tribulation pictured here. It's um, seven years times a 360-day year, which is 2,520 days. And so the Revelation speaks of half of it being 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years, or as Daniel says, a time, a times, and half a time. And right in the middle of the week, the abomination of desolation is going to be committed. Right in the middle of the week, he's going to break this covenant. Now, that doesn't surprise me that this Antichrist, who is Satan's man, will tear up his promise because he's Satan's agent. And Jesus said, whenever he, the devil, speaks, he speaks a lie because he speaks from his own nature. And whenever he speaks, he tells a lie. And so these Jews who will be sacrificing up there in the Temple Mount will be stopped in the middle of the seven-year period. And the Antichrist will say, hold it, wait a minute. You need to worship me. Now, as this slide illustrates, the next slide, there again are 70 periods of seven. The first 69 weeks dealt solely with Israel. The 70th week deals solely with Israel. It's all about the Jewish people. And so we're in the church age. This is the times of the Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, the 70th week is complete. I'm going to give you, when we come to the Revelation, 20 reasons why the church will not be here for the tribulation. But one of the reasons, if you just look at the big scope of things, is the 70 weeks prophecy does not deal with the church where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but it deals with the Jewish people, Israel. And so again, we are in that gap of time. But when the 70th week kicks in, the abomination of desolation will take place. Now, again, the fact that he will put a stop to the sacrifice tells me that the temple will be rebuilt. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that the single most disputed piece of property in the world is the Temple Mount, a 37-acre piece of property. And I suspect that the Antichrist will come with signs, wonders, and miracles, inspired by the devil himself, will convince the world with this firm covenant, maybe this imposed covenant, he will convince the world that they, the Jewish people, should be able to rebuild their temple. I don't know if they will have just been sacrificing for a few months but he will put a stop right in the middle of the seven years. Again, verse 27, he will make a firm covenant. He will put a stop to sacrifice and offerings. And then it says, and on the wing of abominations, 
See, it's plural there. Do you see it? Circle the letter S in your Bible. On the wing of abominations. Now, what is an abomination? Well, there are numerous passages in the Bible, and whenever you see God calling something as an abomination, you don't want to do it. When he calls homosexuality an abomination, it is. It's never changed. Abominations always represent a defiance of God's moral code. And it is most commonly used in Scripture to describe a form of idolatry, whether it's sexual idolatry or whether it's worshiping a man or an object. And so in the Holy of Holies, there's a man who is coming. The Revelation tells us he is going to actually erect a statue of himself invite people to worship it, but not only invite people to worship the statue, that the devil will literally give a inanimate object power to speak, but he will ask people to worship him. And on the wing of abominations, he shall come desolating. Now, the word wing in Hebrew is a word that's used to describe an overpowering or an overspreading influence. And that influence will come with signs and wonders and miracles. So this act of idolatry, really two abominations, which can be summarized into one as Jesus gives it to us in Matthew 24. He tells us until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out upon the one who makes desolate. Now, again, when does this take place? When we come to the Revelation, we're also going to study the Olivet Discourse. And if you look at Matthew chapter 24, the first half of the chapter describes the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then when you come to verse 15 of Matthew 24, Jesus said for, um, it's, it's, maybe I didn't give you verse 15. Is verse 15? Oh, verse 21 is there. Okay. There it is. Therefore, one, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that this event, quoting the prophet Daniel, takes place right in the middle of this seven-year period. So when the Antichrist goes into the temple and he commits the abomination of desolation, look out, because the worst single time in human history that the world has ever seen is going to unfold. There will be tribulation in the first half. But then there will be great tribulation, like Jesus said the world had never seen, and had those days not been cut short, not a single person would survive on earth. Now let's see what this event is about. Paul writes about it in his epistle. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, and we'll finish with this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, it's in the New Testament. All the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T are together. First and Second Thessalonians come before First and Second Timothy before Titus. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter two, and in verse four, we're told about the Antichrist, the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
Again, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus called this in Matthew 24, 15, the abomination of desolation. And Jesus said, when you see this event taking place, let the reader understand. What does that tell me? It tells me it's understandable. As hard as Daniel the prophet is, and this one of the most significant of prophetic prophecies concerning the end times, as hard as it is, it's understandable. Let the reader understand. So he's quoting Daniel, and he's quoting what will happen right in the middle when the abomination desolation takes place, when the Antichrist goes into the temple and claims to be God. Now think about the devil. He has always wanted the worship of men. That's the genesis of his fall. Why did the devil become the devil? Why did Lucifer, his holy name, why did Lucifer become the devil? Because in the five I wills of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be worshipped by man and by angels. And so that's how the devil became the devil. And so what he was not able to accomplish in ages past, what he could not get Christ to do when he offered him all the kingdoms of the world, which were his to offer because Adam lost him through sin, What he couldn't get Christ to do, he will ultimately get the world to do through his man, the Antichrist, who exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now look at verses 6 and 7. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only he who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. So Satan, through this man of sin, through the Antichrist, is going to bring his program to earth. Why hasn't it happened yet? Because there's a restrainer. There's somebody who's holding him back. Again, in verse 6, the Thessalonians knew who the restrainer was, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time, the Antichrist's time, he will be revealed. And even though the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, there's a counterbalance at work. There's a restrainer. And so in verse 6, if you will notice, he speaks of what restrains him now. And then in verse 7, he speaks of he who now restrains him. So in one verse, he speaks of what? An instrument, namely the church. And the next verse, he speaks of a he, namely the Spirit of God. Now, the King James, I think, is correct in capitalizing that pronoun, though there are no distinguishing lower or upper cases in the Greek manuscripts. They're either all lowercase or all uppercase. And so the translators have to put capitals and lowercase letters in. But I think they were right because I think clearly it is the Holy Spirit who is restraining largely through the church, but also by his own power, sin in the world. But there's coming event. It's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. It's called the rapture. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be snatched away. We call it the harparzo. In Latin, it's called the rapture. And when the church is gone, when the light that dispels darkness is gone, when the salt that preserves righteousness is gone, then darkness will come in and the rottenness of moral decay will spread like you've never seen it. Now, it's begun. Why? Because the final church that we're going to study in Revelation will become a lukewarm church. 
And because the church lacks light and lacks salt, evil is having a heyday. It seems like every month that goes by, things get worse. But when the church is taken out and totally removed, evil is going to have total freedom. Look at verse 8 of that chapter. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring an end by the, by the appearance of his coming. That's what Daniel wrote about. He's going to be destroyed. In a moment's time, he's going to be destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and wonders. So he's speaking here of the coming of the lawless one. The word coming is the Greek word parousia. And we speak of the parousia or the coming of Christ. But the same word is used of the Antichrist who will try to imitate the Lord Jesus. Just as Jesus came with signs, wonders, and miracles, the Antichrist will come with signs, wonders, and miracles inspired by the devil himself. And verse 10 says, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them, the people of the world, a deluding influence so that they may will believe what is false. Now, how can God delude a person that they will believe in untruth? Well, first of all, it's clear who are deluded. And the people who are deluded are the people who would not respond. And the people who would not respond are those who love sin more than they love God. In other words, behind the great delusion is the great refusal. Just as John's gospel teaches, it's their great love for sin that causes men to turn from Christ. And so during the 70th week, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will come with all kinds of deception, and most of the world will buy into the abomination of desolation. Verse 12 tells us, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. The order is clear. Condemnation, damnation, judgment. And these, as chapter 1 has already said, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So follow it. It's very logical, the whole process. First, they took pleasure in wickedness. They refused to receive the love of the truth. So they were deceived by the activity of Satan through his man, signs, wonders, and miracles. And so they became recipients of the strong delusion. They believed what was false. And in the end, they are judged for all of eternity. Now, no one knows for sure when the 70th week will begin. It could begin before this day is over. And I want to tell you, my friend, if it begins and you're only a pseudo-Christian, if you're a born-again Christian in name only, but your life has never been transformed, or if you are an outright unbeliever who has a love for sin, don't think that you're going to get things right during the Great Tribulation period. Because of your refusal in your heart today, you will come under a judgment of God, a great delusion. And you will believe things that you thought today you would never believe. And you will give allegiance 
to this coming world leader who comes instead of Christ, who comes in the place of Christ because you refused his son today. And you don't want to be alive because as Daniel will say in the 12th chapter and as Jesus will quote in Matthew 24, there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That has never been fulfilled. These reformed brothers who say the tribulation, the Antichrist all happened in the first century, sheer ridiculous and folly. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, which we are, you know the rapture is that much closer. God prophesied the regathering of his people from across the world. He began that in the 20th century. He continues it to our day. He predicted the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in one day. Isaiah the prophet spoke of it. It happened. May 14, 1948. The third key prophecy that God spoke of was the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem. The Jews had not had it since 135, and it happened in 1967. And the fourth key prophecy is that the nations of the world would come against Israel and they would defy their right to own the city of Jerusalem. And that is the official position of the United Nations and the European Union that the Jews do not have a legitimate right to Jerusalem. And God says that will happen at the end of time before his son comes from heaven. Now, I hope you're ready because it could happen in our lifetime And God said, when you see these things take place, look up because your redemption is near. Are you ready? Our Father, thank you for these truths that we've studied today. Bring them to our hearts. Bring them to some complacent person today who's satisfied with lukewarmness, maybe who have even deceived their own hearts thinking that they're saved when they are eternally lost. You told us there'll be a great multitude of people like that at the end of time. Help us to have eyes to see what is actually happening in our world. I pray today for someone to repent and to believe on Christ. But we pray for those who are members of the true church that have been born again, who are in local assemblies across the world. Help us not to become complacent and lukewarm in the age in which we find ourselves, but to live holy, separated, passionate, zealous lives for Christ, whatever the cost. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.